Wow, Gina, everything looks fabulous. Well, I'll tell you something, it's such a treat for me to have a home-cooked meal like this. Dinner at my house usually consisted of everybody in the kitchen fighting over containers of Chinese food. Oh, you poor thing. What, there wasn't enough food to go around, Greg? No, there was. We just never really sat down like a family like this. Oh. Greg, would you like to say grace? Oh, uh, well, uh, Greg, Jewish dad, you know. You're telling me Jews don't pray, honey? Unless you have some objection. No, 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 no. No, I'd love to. Pam, come on. It's not like I'm a rabbi or something. I said grace at many a dinner table. Okay. Oh, dear God. Thank you. You are such a good God to us, a, a kind and gentle and accommodating God. And we thank you, O oh sweet, sweet Lord of hosts, for the smorgasbord you have so aptly lain at our table this day and each day by day. Day by day, by day. Oh, dear Lord, three things we pray. To love thee more dearly, to see thee more clearly, to follow thee more nearly, day by day, by day. Amen. Amen. Oh, Greg, that was lovely. Thank you, Greg. That was interesting, too. It's not shocking that a Catholic priest believes in the power of prayer, but it is a bit of a surprise that Father John Murray says he can prove it. Do you think you're a miracle? Yes, oh, without a doubt. Four years ago, Father Murray broke his neck in a fall. I was paralyzed from my chest down. Doctors told him he'd never walk again. You should expect no voluntary movement. That's a quote. But his doctors were wrong. I think it's a result of prayer, yes, without a doubt. Other people's prayers and my prayers, without a doubt. You're getting stronger, huh? <laughs> fooling me. Let's hope so. His doctors may be stunned, but half of all Americans believe prayer can heal. So why is it almost non-existent in the doctor's office? Doctors are still, still reluctant. They've been pretty much trained to keep these areas separate. Dr. Harold Koning used to be one of them, but now he says after reviewing hundreds of studies, he's changed his mind. The more religious, the greater the well-being. Koning is now leading the charge from within the medical establishment to get doctors to recognize prayer's power. Armed with research like his own at Duke, it says those who pray daily are 40% less likely to have high blood pressure. Studies by others have claimed prayer can reduce depression and anxiety. We think that the research shows and will show that people whose faith is supported by their medical team, they're just going to do better. Witness the brain on prayer. You can see it's almost all red here when the person is just at rest, but you see it turns into these yellow colors when she's actually doing prayer. 
Dr. Andrew Newberg injects a radioactive dye in his subjects to see what happens when they pray. He says each time something fascinating takes place. So would you go so far as to say prayer can heal? Oh, absolutely, absolutely can heal. There are changes in different neurotransmitters, the chemicals in our brain that helps to release things like serotonin and dopamine in the brain, some of which can help to repress pain. Dr. Newberg's research and the books she's written are part of the hundreds of studies in the past decade as the medical establishment takes a new look at religion's role in modern medicine. You know, as far as we know, it is not a cure for cancer. It is not going to cure somebody of heart disease. We can't tell people to pray in order to get better. That doesn't really make sense. The reason that it works is because it's part of the person's belief system. Dr. Newberg does hope his research will help foster understanding about the mysteries of belief. Cynthia McFadden, NBC News, Philadelphia. Now, Dr. Newberg says prayer works because it's part of a person's belief system. I would say that uh, prayer is a way of reorienting ourselves. You know, the greatest longing of the human heart is to feel um, accepted, secure, uh, to feel valuable. But, but sadly, uh, as human beings, we tend to go out seeking that in all sorts of unorthodox ways. Uh, as we're seeking our security or our um, uh, significance or acceptance, we, we tend to look for it and judge ourselves by standards that really don't matter. Uh, for instance, the, uh, the first standard is uh, the standard, put it up on the screen, of appearance. I mean, we tend to think that if we judge ourselves to be beautiful, then uh, we must be important. We, we must have some kind of value. Or the second standard might be affluence. If I have a lot, I must be worth a lot. Or we tend to judge ourselves by another standard, achievement. In other words, my value uh, is determined by my accomplishments, my position, my influence. Or it might be approval. How popular am I? Am I loved? Now, the problem with this value system here is that it's unstable. It doesn't last. I mean, you think about it, beauty fades. Uh, things wear out. There'll be somebody who accomplishes more than you and is more successful, and you will not be liked by everyone. But prayer is a way of reorienting ourselves, of reminding ourselves where our true value comes from. Now, did you know there was a song written about that very issue several years ago? It's not the kind of song you'd find on YouTube. This song was actually written 3,000 years ago by a shepherd boy named David. And in it, his lyrics reflect his heart of prayer toward God as he's wrestling with questions concerning himself, his world, and his God. So, so as we begin this new series called Honest to God, which is a look at prayer by looking at the Psalms, I think it'd be good to start where David started in Psalm 139. 
I want you to notice what he says. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You comprehend my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. For there's not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. I mean, the first thing that really leaps off the page here is that you and I aren't alone. I mean, our search for security and acceptance might actually have fulfillment. The psalmist tells us that God knows us, but I want you to notice the extent to which God knows us. David says he knows us intimately. I mean, in verse 2 he says, you know my sitting down and my rising up. In other words, he knows our actions. He knows our most common and casual moments, but it's more than knowing our actions. He goes on to say, you also know our thoughts. He says, you understand my thoughts from afar. You comprehend my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways, for there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Now, if you think about that, That's downright disturbing. Someone would know us like that. I mean, you think about that. Thoughts, they enter our mind through a series of distant fleeting concepts as microscopic nerve fibers begin to fire, relating and connecting to a complicated web of nerves in the brain. I mean, we can see thoughts enter a person's brain when their face lights up. And we can hear thoughts exit a person's brain as they come out their mouth with words. But we can't see in between the two. David is saying, but God can. And if that's not mind-boggling enough, he goes on to say that God knows our words even before we utter them, which causes David to say, you know it all together, every word, every thought, every single motive. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment, you knew a person like that, that well. I mean, every action, every thought, every motive. You knew every hurtful way, every selfish opinion. You could see it all. Nothing was hidden from your scrutiny. Would you want a relationship with that person? I mean, you can see everything. I mean, chances are good you would run from that person. I mean, you'd be appalled at what they're thinking. You would see below the surface. You wouldn't want to have anything to do with them. And that's what makes David's next statement so absolutely amazing. Notice he continues. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge, it's too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. In fact, when he says, you've hedged me before and behind, he's using the words 
that have been used elsewhere to describe the enclosing of a city for the purpose of creating a refuge. Can you see what he's saying? He's saying God preserves us. He provides for us. He creates a safe place for us to flourish. How? By laying his protective hands on us. Now, that's astonishing. But that's what God is like, the one we talk to in prayer. In fact, this morning, I want to know if you would help me out in something. I think in a crowd this size, I might find a buyer. I'm selling this Motorola cell phone for $100. Whoops. Just 100 bucks. Now, in, or in order to have full disclosure, you, you need to know that this is slightly used. And actually, I found it in the street. It had been run over three times by a car. But, but the, for a hundred bucks, it's still a good deal. One of the values of owning a phone like this is that if you drop it, it's going to work just as well before, after you drop it as it was before. In fact, you could submerge this and you know, 100 meters of water, 200, 300, 400 meters. It doesn't matter. It's still going to work just like it does right now. And I, I would love to find a buyer for just 100 bucks. Or, or I tell you what, I'll give you a choice. You, I'll sell you this Motorola cell phone for 100 bucks. Or how about this uh, pristine iPhone for 100 bucks? I mean, which would you choose? I mean, only a fool would choose this. Why? Well, it's broken. I mean, it's damaged. It's defective. It doesn't work. But did you know? That's exactly what God did when He chose you. You see, as humans, we are damaged by our selfishness. Our, our independence, our demandedness begins short-circuiting the, the things of our life. And that grieves God. And God sees it all. And the amazing thing is, having seen it, He chose you anyway. He chose you not to keep you at a distance, but to draw you close and have an intimate relationship with you. I mean, that, that's why David concludes this section the way he does. I mean, look at it. He, he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's, it's high. I cannot attain it. So what is the knowledge that's too wonderful that David says he can't attain? It's the fact that God knows us thoroughly but loves us completely. That He knows everything about you, but chooses to have a relationship with you. Now, that, that may feel a little disconcerting to know God knows you like that and loves you that well. But uh, I want you to know there's great value in knowing a God like that. I mean, one writer put it this way. He says, no tell-bearer can inform on us. No enemy can make an accusation stick. 
No forgotten skeleton can come tumbling out of some hidden closet to abash us and expose our past. No unsuspected weakness in our character can come to light to turn God away from us since He already knows us utterly and called us to Himself in the full knowledge of everything that was against us. You see, God loves you as you are. Not as you should be. Because none of us are as we should be. That means no amount of spiritual calisthenics on our part can cause God to love us more. And no amount of independence, demandedness, and rebellion can cause God to love us less than He loves us right now. In fact... If I could paraphrase the conclusion in verse 6, David is saying, man, that blows my mind. That's how I would translate it. Now, why wouldn't you want to know a God like that? You see, if we, we are simply an accident, if we are a product of some random process of evolution then there's no greater purpose to live for than ourselves. But if there is a Creator and He knows us thoroughly and loves us completely, then He must have some kind of purpose in mind. But that's not all David says in this psalm. He knows us intimately, speaking of God, but David goes on to say He pursues us passionately. He continues, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning if, and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall lay hold of me. I mean, what David is saying is simply this, that God is everywhere. In other words, there's no place you can go and not find God. But it's more than simply God is everywhere. I mean, what's fascinating is the way the Hebrew language is structured here. Now, the Hebrew is the language David originally penned this psalm in. And the Hebrew language in this text is abrupt. It is emphatic. It's almost as if the writer, David himself, is trying to run from God to get as far away from Him as possible. And when he runs to that place, his destination, he turns around and he's shocked. God's already there. In fact, if I were to translate this uh, literally, it would go something like this. I go to heaven, you... I go to hell. You! I take the wings of morning. That's a figure of speech for going as far as the rays of the sun will take you. I take the wings of morning. You! I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. You! I mean, can, can you see it? Can you see what David's doing? He's saying, try as you might. You can't flee from God. You try to run from Him and you discover He's already there. Patiently waiting for you. What causes you to avoid God? What causes you to run from Him? Does anything pop in your mind? Do you know the word presence that David uses in this verse? 
is translated elsewhere face. Did you know God has many faces? I mean, the Bible tells us that He has a kind face toward His children. That He has a gentle face, a compassionate face. He has a face of delight when He looks at you. I want you to close your eyes just for a moment. Just close them. Can you picture the face of God? What, what kind of face do you see? What face is looking back at you? And too often it's a harsh face, a judgmental face, a critical face, uh, a disapproving face. No wonder men and women avoid God. Yet in the psalm, the face David sees is a God who even when he's trying to run from him and avoid God with every fiber of his being, this God is still looking for him and looking for you and caring for you and passionately pursuing you. He never gives up. When I was in high school, I had several girlfriends. And I wish I could tell you that I broke up with them, broke their hearts, but the reality is they all broke up with me. And and when it happened, I mean, it just broke my heart. I felt like my stomach was turned inside and out. I mean, it just, it hurt like nothing I'd ever faced before in my life. And I wish I could tell you I handled the pain in a real mature fashion. I mean, it's embarrassing. You know what I did? I thought, they're going to reject me. I'm going to reject them even more. So I would not acknowledge their presence. I would ignore them. I wouldn't talk to them. I'd go the other direction when they came into a room. I remember one day I was walking down the hall and I looked up and my ex-girlfriend came around the corner, was coming right toward me. We were the only two in the hall. I didn't want to talk to her. I didn't want to meet her. I didn't want to acknowledge her presence. So I noticed a door to the left. So I opened it. And went in and shut it behind me. It was a janitor's closet. <laughs> I felt like a fool and looked like an idiot. But if they were going to reject me, I was going to reject them more. You know, I am so glad God doesn't take after our nature. I mean, we reject Him, He doesn't reject us. We discard Him, He doesn't discard us. We, we go into a closet to avoid Him. He simply waits outside patiently for you to come out. But God is more than simply everywhere. The psalmist gets real specific in the next verses. He says He's actually in every circumstance. Notice what he says, if I say surely darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the light shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. Now, you need to know that phrase, the darkness shall fall on me, is a reference to being bruised and crushed by the circumstances, the dark circumstances of life that inevitably come our way. I mean, it could be uh, the darkness surrounding an impending divorce or the fog of being laid off for a second or third time. We feel like 
Life is going to crush us. And all around us is dark. You can't see God. David says, no worries. God can see you right where you are. But it's more than simply the dark circumstances of life and God's desire. Uh, God desires to take us through those dark circumstances and use them for His good. If we'll trust Him. I mean, if we'll lean into Him in those dark circumstances. But, but sadly, most of us as humans, we find ourselves resisting the difficulties of life, the dark circumstances of life. But listen to this. Resisting the circumstances of life is the same as resisting God. When we find ourselves kicking against the circumstances of life that come our way, then we miss the opportunity of the invisible God becoming visible in our circumstances. Several years ago, our son Daniel, when he was 11 years old, he was diagnosed with a brain tumor. It was located in the back of the brain against the most eloquent parts of the brain. And with that diagnosis, I was frustrated, I was mad, and I was scared to death. I mean, what parent wouldn't want to take the place of their child so they wouldn't have to go through what he was going to face? I mean, what parent wouldn't want to fix the circumstances? And then they told us we had to wait 11 days for the surgery schedule to open up. And I was even more angry. 11 days to have a tumor out that I thought should be out right now? But I, I took my frustration and my anger and I leaned into God with it. I told Him all about it. And as I did that, I began to see that He knew exactly what He was doing. See, those 11 days, they were harder than I ever imagined, but, but they were also good. They, they gave us the opportunity to process what we were going through with ourselves, Patty, and me, and with Daniel. Those 11 days, it was as if um, we gave Daniel to God. Now, we'd done that before. We'd gone through baby dedications, things like that, but never like this with a brain tumor. It was during that time that God began to demagnetize me of the superficial things in life I was just naturally drawn to, like what people thought of me building a successful church. It became increasingly easy to see the difference between that which matters and that which just seemed to matter. You see, when we resist the circumstances of life, we miss the opportunity to see God work. The kindness of His face can be found as you lean into Him and trust Him through the circumstances of, his, of life, rather than kicking against the circumstances. But, but did you know God's love for you started long before you were born? Look at verse 13. It says, For you formed my inward parts, you covered me in my mother's womb. 
I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. And that my soul knows very well. See, God not only knows us intimately, He not only pursues us passionately, but David tells us thirdly, He created us perfectly. In fact, one of the greatest proofs that you are significant to God is your body. And it's designed. I mean, notice carefully how, how He has made us. He says, my, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. My eyes saw, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they were all written the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. I I don't think anyone could argue that the human body isn't a phenomenal combination of strength, beauty, and, and grace. I mean, I think of that every single time I watch an instant replay of Michael Jordan dunking the basketball. Or I watch Hussein Bolt winning another 100-meter dash. But, but if you think the outside of the body is remarkable, just take a peek on the inside. Well, one of my hobbies in the past has been observing surgeries. I've had the privilege of watching a number of eye surgeries, a couple hip replacements. But I think the most interesting surgery I got to observe was an exploratory appendectomy. I remember as a surgeon cut the patient open, I just watched in locked fascination at what was going on. And he pointed out the different organs. He showed me the function of those, tell, told me the function of those organs. I was amazed at how tightly knit they all were together inside that person's stomach. Each one working in tandem with the other. I remember leaving the OR that day having a whole new appreciation for how God had put the human body together. But God not only knows us inside and out. And what's amazing, David says, He even knew you before you were born. I mean, notice He said, My friend was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. Do you know where's the most dangerous place to live in America? Chicago? Detroit, maybe? Inner city, New York City? Uh, maybe an uh, overcrowded prison? You know, as dangerous as those places are, they can't compare to the most dangerous place in the world to live. The womb of a mother. Did you know there is more death per capita there than any place on this planet? Now, when I say that as Americans, we tend to think politically rather than personally. We think baby versus fetus. We think life versus choice. But, but I want you to hear these words the way God intended them in this passage, aimed directly at our hearts. He's saying here, you, you were made by God. 
that His eye has been upon you from before you were born. That He began forming you in the womb the moment that sperm made contact with that egg. That He has been, from the earliest moments of conception, thinking about you. In other words, when you were completely surrounded by embryonic fluid, God had you in mind. That's what the psalmist is saying here. But notice God's concern for you goes way beyond conception and birth. David says he even marks out the very days that were appointed to us. It goes on to say, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book they were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there was not none of, there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts, thoughts toward me, O God. How great are the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sands. And when I awake, I'm still with you. In other words, David is saying that our days are like a piece of clay that has been placed firmly on the potter's wheel. And there is a divine potter with his hands around that clay, forming it, shaping it. He's pressing it, pulling, cutting, twisting, until it takes the exact shape that potter has in mind. In fact, if I could paraphrase what David is saying here, he's saying how valuable I must be toward you. How magnificent are your thoughts toward me. I mean, you even arrange the events of a 24-hour day to shape me into the person you've called me to be. Your thoughts, your kind thoughts toward me are overwhelming to me. And if I should die, I will awake and you'll be there. I mean, David is saying that God knows us intimately, pursues us passionately, creates us perfectly. But he concludes this psalm by telling us that God protects us thoroughly. Notice what he says. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, bloodthirsty men. For they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not uh, hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them my enemy. I mean, David has used the strongest words possible to describe his enemy. Notice, he uses wicked, bloodthirsty, those who speak wickedly. Now, you need to know, but these men who oppose David also oppose David's God. And so it's only natural for David, knowing God's affection for him, to conclude that his heavenly Father would want to protect him from men like that. In fact, several years ago, we rented a cabin at Lake Nebagaman, Wisconsin, the northern, northern part of Wisconsin that we go to every summer as a family. And about five or six doors down from our cabin, uh, an elderly couple had rented a cabin. And on this particular morning, I guess they got up early, they went out to the end of their dock and they were just in, enjoying the stillness of a beautiful morning on the lake. 
when suddenly they heard the strangest yelp come from their German shepherd. When they turned to see what was going on, they saw on the end of their dock, right at the entrance of it, a big black bear on its hind legs with their German shepherd in its mouth. They couldn't get off the dock because the bear was blocking the entrance. They didn't know what to do. They started screaming for help. A fisherman had heard their calls and drove his boat up to the edge of the dock. They jumped in and sped off a safe distance. When they turned the boat around to see what was going on on shore, they they noticed two little cub bears just kind of shuffling along on the beach, looking around, not concerned about anything. And when those two little cubs had passed, the mother bear put down the German shepherd unharmed. And the three of them, this family, just shuffled off together. You see, it's natural for a mother bear to want to protect her cubs. And it's natural for a human mom and dad to want to protect their children. Now, what's evident in the Uh, wild kingdom of animals and is evident in the human race is even more evident with God. Now, that's what David is saying here. He's talking about God looking at him and wanting to protect him. When he says, Oh, that you should slay, meaning remove. Oh, that you should remove the wicked. He's saying God is just like that mother bear, removing that German shepherd so it cannot bring her cubs any harm. Now, David concludes this psalm in one sentence. And in it, you discover a very strange request. He says, search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. And know my anxiety. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, now this series on prayer that we're starting, we're entitling Honest to God because God wants us to be honest with ourselves and honest to Him in prayer. Now, prayer is simply talking with God. It's telling God the truth about us and telling us Reminding ourselves of the truth about God. Now, David concludes with this rather strange and unusual request. He says, so God, I want you to search me. It means to probe, to dig deep, uh, to make a thorough examination, to search every nook and cranny, no matter how deep you need to go. I mean, do you see what he's doing here? He's asking God to do exploratory surgery. Now, when you submit yourself for exploratory surgery, you don't do it for the benefit of the surgeon. No, you do it for your own benefit. You want to discover what's wrong inside So it can be corrected either by the surgeon or by you so that you can live a life that's flourishing. You see, what David is doing here is he's realizing he wants to know this God. 
So why would he ask him to do exploratory surgery in his life? Well, having satisfied himself that he must matter because he matters to God. And secondly, having realized that God loves him as he is, not as he should be. And then, I mean, also uh, coming to the conclusion and discovering that if he rejects God, God doesn't reject him David is realizing here at the end that this is an incredible opportunity. This is a chance to know God. And so he asked God, I want you to search me. Do exploratory surgery. See if there's any hurtful way in me, any way that would keep me from moving closer to you. Would you be willing this week to say, God, I want to know you like David seems to know you. So would you search me? Show me what you find. Lead me in your ways. It's a very simple prayer. You may have seen this on your way in. We've put together a little guide that may help you through this series. It's entitled, Honest to God, A Pathway to Prayer. Uh, The guide will follow the sermon series that Chad and I will be doing from the Psalms. And it's a way to engage with God and go deeper, if you'd like, and experiment with praying to God. In fact, I hope it does encourage you to get creative and experiment. I remember several years ago I'd spent a summer in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and it was a particularly discouraging time. And one afternoon I thought, I want to get out and just talk to God as I walk around a lake that was near where I was staying. They have a bazillion lakes in Minneapolis, so they were easy to find. And as I walked around the lake talking to God, I, I stumbled on a beach. And I looked down and I saw the sand and verse 17 and 18 of Psalm 139 just popped in my mind. Remember what it said? If you could throw it back up there. How precious are your thoughts toward me, O God. How great are the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I wake up, you, I'm still with you. And I thought, you know... I'm going to pick up some of that sand. And I started to separate out just a single grain of sand and another and another. And each one I assigned a thought that I thought God had toward me, like I love you or I extend grace to you or I have redeemed you or I delight in you. And I did that about 15, 20, 25 thoughts. And I'd run out of thoughts that God might have toward me. And I looked at the pile of sand in my hand, and there was 10,000 probably more grains of sand. And, And then I looked past that to the beach, and there were a bazillion grains. And then I found myself overwhelmed by how God affectionately engages with me in my heart and what He thinks of me. And it was a wonderful time of engaging with Him in prayer. Hopefully this book will help you do that. And I hope as you will engage with the heart of God and discover a part of God maybe you didn't know before. 
Father, would you help us in this? It seems unfair that you would know us so thoroughly and we know so little about you in comparison. Would you help us engage and would you make yourself known? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you for coming and we'll see you back next week.